Let's turn now to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll read uh, verses 13 through 34 of chapter 12. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. And God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In connection with our scripture reading, let's uh, turn in our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 46 on page 253. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Why the words, who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way, and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good uh, to end the day. It's good to end every day with thoughts of God and thoughts that uh, may be expressed either verbally or in your own mind or whispered, thoughts of, uh, of gratitude and, uh, and of uh, requests and praise to your Heavenly Father. And it may be 
as you lay in bed, that you end the day with such thoughts and prayers, perhaps as you drift to sleep. But uh, as precious and valuable as such things are, that uh, shouldn't be the main prayer time of your day. Uh, just some thoughts and words at the end of the day. Because if that's the case, uh, then the danger is that your prayers are sleepy prayers, or you uh, even often fall asleep while praying. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the Bible says to pray without ceasing. And so at, at the end of the day, if you're reflecting upon God and his goodness and uh, you lift up your thoughts to him and you fall asleep while doing so, well, that's a wonderful thing. And when you awake, the Lord is still with you. So I'm not uh, suggesting that such prayers are of no value or of no importance, but I am saying that these ought not to be the main prayer time of our day. There is a difference between praying without ceasing, short prayers throughout the day, being aware of God periodically as we face needs to pray briefly, even in the midst of our busyness. There's a difference between that and what uh, are sometimes called stated times of prayer. That is the practice of prayer at certain uh, occasions. Corporately, we have that. We gather for worship. We gather for prayer. Uh, there are stated times of prayer in connection with council meetings and Bible studies and prayer meetings. And I trust that you have stated times of prayer in your homes as family. It's a good thing to pray together uh, as you sit around the table uh, ready to begin eating together. It's very important to practice family devotions. And it's also very important to practice personal and private prayer times. Uh, Jesus said, when you pray, enter into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And such prayers indeed should be, should be wide awake, uh, literally. Congregational prayers should be prayers offered while we are wide awake. Uh, congregational prayers are not the time for, uh, dozing off, uh, because nobody will notice anyway because it's time for prayer. You know, I've even been a bit skeptical on occasion of people who have said, I can't recall any from one from this church saying that, but I remember hearing, well, I, I listen better to sermons with my eyes closed. Well, you just really never know, because that's a real handy way of uh, making an excuse to pray when you actually should be listening to the sermon, but you're not. And so we should be wide awake in prayer and in listening to God's word. And uh, that's certainly the case with our family prayers, and our personal prayer time. But even beyond this matter of being literally awake, there is a kind of spiritual sleep that uh, we might say leaves people dead to the world of unseen things, spiritual things. And to them, God says, Awake, you who sleep, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. But it's also true that Christians can be sluggish and spiritually sleepy, and uh, then our prayers can be sluggish instead of watchful, and uh, we can pray formally but without feeling. We can make requests without real desires. Uh, we can say prayers without any real spiritual exertion 
to pay attention, uh, to be real, to be intentional in speaking to the Most High. And we must be intentional. We must be spiritually alert to the significance of what we're doing when we pray to God. We should think of it, that we're actually speaking to the Most High God. The address that our Lord Jesus taught us in prayer when he said, when you say pray, our Father in heaven, uh, this address is to awaken in us, uh, we read. At the very beginning of our prayer, what should be basic to our prayer? A childlike reverence and trust. The use of such words uh, should serve to awaken us, to consider what we're doing. And uh, our catechism speaks of this alertness uh, that is then characterized by trust and reverence as basic to prayer. In fact, we might say that it is so basic that wherever there is no trust or reverence, there is no prayer. True prayer always involves these characteristics. So our theme... The, this this evening is to pray with hearts that are wide awake to God, wide awake to the reality of the God to whom we speak, so that our our hearts, our feelings might be affected, that we might pray truly and sincerely, and that means being awake first of all to the amazing grace of God's relationship to us. It is it's unbelief that led. Israel to question God's love kind of in a cynical way. God speaks to them through his prophet saying, I have loved you. And their response, wherein have you loved us? It's really quite outrageous. It's an expression of unbelief and ingratitude. God had demonstrated his love for them. God had separated them from all the peoples of the earth, even from uh, from a twin brother of their spiritual forefather, Jacob. God had established his covenant with them. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God had given to them his laws. God had given to them the whole uh, sacrificial system, the whole system of worship whereby they could approach God and be assured of his acceptance. God had given them his word. God had given them the Passover, circumcision, and on and on and on. And they ought to have received and believed these things as expressions of God's love for them. You know that all people are obligated. They're under an obligation to believe in divine love as it is displayed in his gifts. We sing that hymn, Immortal, Invisible, it speaks of the clouds as being fountains of love and goodness. Those clouds that pour out the rain upon the unjust as well as the just. God causes his sun to shine even upon the ungrateful. Food and drink that fills men's hearts with gladness. They obligate them to acknowledge the giver of these gifts. To trust in him, to love him. Unthankful, that's the indictment that the Word of God brings to the human race. Unthankful, unholy, these things go together. So all people are obligated to even receive those gifts of God in His providence as tokens of His love 
for which they should be deeply grateful. But how much more, then, is that the case with those who have received his covenant mercies, those who have been given his word, those whom he calls his people, those whom he gives his ordinances of worship, all the means whereby they might draw near to him in sincerity and truth with a solid basis for acceptance as revealed by God. That's the height of ingratitude. That's the kind of ingratitude that Israel was guilty of. They were asleep to the reality of God and his goodness to them. God's grace to sinners is revealed, especially in his saving provisions. That was true for Israel. And how much more is that not true for us? When the fullness of God's revelation of the way of righteousness has been accomplished and revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the lavishness of God's grace is revealed to us in Christ. And it's revealed in a special way in adoption. The grace of adoption. What manner of love, John exclaims. What manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? There he speaks of God as the Father. That's who he is. In Malachi 1, we read, A son honors his father. If then I am a father or the father, where is my honor? That's not a question, if I am a father. It's assumed that that's the case. And that proclaims the ingratitude and unbelief of those who fail to honor God as Father. That's how he has revealed himself to us. And that's important to to uh, understand that this is an actual revelation of what is true, that God is the Father. The Bible doesn't just say that God is like a father. It's not as if there is this human relationship that we are familiar with, that of, of fathers, and uh, God's relationship is kind of like that. No, God is the eternal Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And every every good Father, indeed, is a reflection of something, of who God is and his relationship with his children. It's not simply that God is like a father. He is father. If we think that God is simply like a father, then we can move where a lot have moved in recent years or even uh, for many decades. And that is the idea that God is just as much like a mother as like a father. As if it's simply a matter of an analogy. And people will, will point to passages like Isaiah chapter 66, which says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I comfort you. And actually, even that doesn't say that God is like a mother. It says like one who feels the comfort as from a mother is comforted that way by God. Yes, there are other uh, feminine analogies or metaphors to describe God's care as a hen gathers her chickens under her wing. That's a picture of God's gracious, tender care in protecting his saints. But that doesn't mean that God reveals himself as a mother, nor does it mean that God reveals himself as mother. And to use such language 
of God is to lie and to distort the truth of who he is. Actually, God is the only one, absolutely, who has authority to determine what pronouns are to be used by him. For everyone else, it's a given. God names himself. God reveals himself. Now again, don't misunderstand me. It's not as if this, the point is that God is somehow of the male gender. And that, in the sense that he is a man. That's not the point. That's not the point of such la- uh, language. And we don't, we don't use that language of God to speak of his gender. We're talking about God's self-revelation and how he names himself. And he names himself as Father. And that's his eternal identity, right? Because in relationship to his eternal Son, he is always the Father. And the Father was never without the Son, or the Son without the Father. The lavishness of grace is revealed in our adoption. That this eternal Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has become our Father by adoption. And this grace is given great emphasis by our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 30 we read, Your Father knows that you need these things. Referring there to those material Provisions that sustain our earthly lives, such as food and drink, and our need for clothing. Your Father knows that you need such things. And that's the language that really pervades the the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew uh, 6 and 7. Your Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, repeated again and again and again, revealing this wondrous relationship that we have to God as our Father through Jesus Christ. In fact, we might say that the the mission of our Lord Jesus was to reveal the Father. So this language which which Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, a relationship that we share as his children, this language is true. It's based upon God's self-revelation. It's based upon his grace revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's given to us, this language is given to us for our faith to take hold of, to believe it, to think within ourselves as we come to God, that we are coming to our Heavenly Father, to awaken in us this childlike reverence and trust. Be awake, be awake to that amazing grace of your relationship to God as your Father when you pray. And secondly, be awake to the amazing greatness of God's heavenly majesty. Uh, The name Father should awaken reverence. We need to be clear on that. right? It's not as if the name Father evokes trust And the addition, in heaven teaches reverence. No, both of these names, both of these aspects of our address to God teach both reverence and trust. And that means that the name Father should awaken reverence. 
the Israelites disbelieved God's love. And as a result of that, they disrespected God's honor. A son honors his father. If I am a father, then where is my honor? Well, God's honor is matchless. In fact, Malachi goes on to proclaim how great God's honor is. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. My name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. We live in the days of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Here we are, people from different nations in terms of ethnic background, and we extol the great name of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, matchless in power and majesty and goodness. That's God's purpose. I am a great king, verse 14, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations and throughout the world. Christians gather and they worship this great God with reverence for who he is, what he does. These people that the prophet addresses were not awake to God's grace nor to his greatness. And they showed it. And they showed it by their lame worship. That's how it's described here. They took his name lightly. The priest failed to honor his name. They failed to reverence him. They treated his worship as nothing special, as something common, even even contemptible. And because of that, they brought lame sacrifices. Literally, when God had uh, required unblemished, spotless lambs, they were careless. They brought blemished, lame, blind animals that they thought worthy of being discarded. They're going to go to waste anyway. They're just going to be burned. I'll keep the good ones for myself. They failed to honor God through these sacrifices, defective sacrifices. God says, I, I, I take no pleasure in you, in verse 10, because they failed to offer these sacrifices in faith, in gratitude, believing that these are the provisions that God has required in order to testify to his saving mercy in the way of justice through a substitute whose blood was shed so that they might be forgiven, that they might be a special people to God by pure grace. And they were not affected by that. And so they failed to revere God. Now, we don't bring animal sacrifices, do we? But we need to be aware of the fact that we can do the same thing, really, if we are not awake to God's greatness in our worship, in our prayer. Again, think of what it says in verse 11. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. That's a prophecy of these days in which we live. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. Now, does that mean that when Christ has come and lived and died and rose again, that this old covenant form of worship is going to spread throughout the world, and that people of all nations are going to be bringing animals to the temple and burning incense through the priests? No! Jesus Christ put an end to that old covenant form of worship. So we don't burn incense, and we don't bring animal sacrifices, but we offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to God. 
And our prayers arise before God as incense acceptable through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's prophesied here. But it must be a pure sacrifice, a pure offering of sincerity and faith. We must pray awake to who God is, awake to our relationship with Him, awake to His greatness and His goodness. God is the God of all flesh. He's the Father of spirits. He knows and He cares what's going on inwardly. Thus says the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him who is of a poor and contrite spirit. What an amazing combination of ideas. I dwell in the high and holy place. And I don't come down from there in worship. But the amazing thing is I dwell in such transcendent majesty and grandeur with those that are of a contrite spirit. We worship this great God who admits us into his presence. But we must do so with reverence. And we must do so with active faith. We must be awake to the reality of God. You know, when you say such things, you feel that we're all kind of half asleep. We're not yet fully awake to the majesty and glory of God. And we must believe that God can manifest himself in such a way as to fill us with far deeper reverence, far deeper trust and love and worship. But we ought to endeavor to worship God sincerely and truly. God's heavenly majesty should awaken our reverence. Now that's associated with the name Father, but it's especially revealed in the fact that he is our Father in heaven. There's this interesting uh, few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, or actually chapter 5. With respect to worship, it says, walk prudently, take care when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. A reminder of this infinite distance between the creator and the creature in terms of his transcendent majesty and glory. Yes, we may approach to him. He admits us into his presence, but we cannot comprehend the vastness of his glory. But we should reflect upon it. We should prepare ourselves and think seriously about what an amazing grace is ours that we might approach him and do so then with reverence. Yes, God is close to us in his love and in his care for us as his children. But he is transcendent in majesty and power. And so we are to have no earthly thought of him. That's the language of our, of our catechism. I had a preacher once that I sat and ate candy while he preached and it always distracted me, but I'm a, I'm going to suck out a Hall's candy so I can keep talking a little bit. <laughs> we are to have no earthly thought of him. 
And the fact is, again, that our highest thoughts fall short of his matchless glory. I was struck by these words of uh, Proverbs chapter 30, the words of Agur, the sons of Jacob, his utterance. This is what he said. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. You think, wow, that's a pretty pessimistic expression of low self-esteem. Well, I think actually what we have here is a man who is gripped with the transcendent majesty of God. And in contrast to the reality of this inexpressible glory, he felt that he knew nothing. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? That's an expression of, of humble wonder. And from there, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Declaration of God's greatness. We must not bring God down to our own thoughts. That's what people do if they imagine that God does not see, as if God is not near. Jeremiah 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? An earthly thought of God is to imagine that he is somehow distant. He doesn't see and know us. Or maybe he doesn't care that much. Psalm 50 describes that attitude towards sin. The prophet rebukes those who uh, give their tongue to frame deceit and sit again, and speak against their brother and slander their mother's uh, son who partake with uh, thieves and adulterers. And he says, these things you've done, and I kept silent. No immediate judgment. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you. I will and set them in order before your eyes. Now forget this, or now consider this. Consider, think about this, you who forget God. Lest I tear you in pieces, there's none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. It's earthly thoughts that forgets God, as if he doesn't see, as if he doesn't know, doesn't care. And then consider this one. It's earthly thoughts of God to think that he cannot or will not act to save. In Isaiah 55, we read, My thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. And that's absolutely true in terms of the vast difference of his perfect and absolute knowledge and the depths of his wisdom. But in this context, God is comforting people with the assurance that his ways are not like the ways of, his, of a man. And God is powerful and gracious to save. You see, the, 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 the verse I read begins with, For, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. What do we hear before that? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him 
while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How do you describe people who sit under the proclamation of the gospel and are neither convicted of their sin or of their need or moved to call upon God and to seek Him and to seek the forgiveness of their sins and the transformation of their lives? They're having earthly thoughts of God. They imagine that He doesn't have power to save them, to change, to forgive them. And so they remain speechless before him. Their hearts are not awakened to him. They don't seek the Lord. They don't call upon him in their need. They don't say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, teach me your ways. God, reveal your son, Jesus Christ. God, forgive me. And they will be without excuse for so lowering God in their minds so as to fail to take his words seriously when he calls them to turn to him and live. We must have no earthly thoughts of God. We should be awake to the amazing grace of our relationship to him, the amazing greatness of God's heavenly majesty. And then thirdly, we should be awake to the amazing confidence we should have in prayer. As I said, both parts of this address teach us this confidence. Both the fact that he is our father and the fact that he is in heaven encourage certain expectations and absolute trust, as well as reverence. He is the perfect father. Answer 120, where it refers to Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. Just what man is there among you who... If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? God is a perfect Father. And that's presented here as the reason to, to ask, to seek, to knock, with the assurance that he who asks receives. To him who knocks, it will be open. Him who seeks will find. He is a perfect father. He is the almighty God and father. He not only cares, but he is able to meet all our needs. He demonstrates this in his power over creation. He clothes the grass uh, with beautiful flowers. Uh, he, he feeds the birds. And his almighty power is joined with an absolute knowledge. Not only does he rule their lives so that none of them falls without his will, but he knows them. He knows the hairs of our head. And he knows what our needs are far better than we do. Your heavenly father knows that you have need of such things. He knows all our needs, physical and spiritual. And he will certainly meet our deepest need. We heard the words of our Savior in Luke 12 where he says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. His good pleasure to lavish upon you eternal life, a place in his presence. Through Christ, this grace is given us. 
This grace of adoption. This grace that reveals God's good pleasure. That's the language also that we, we hear in Ephesians chapter 5. With reference to adoption, rather in chapter 1, God has chosen us, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I have no pleasure in you, God says to the unbelieving, but in his grace he adopts sinners to be his own children, and he takes great pleasure in the display of his saving love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our confidence for everything else really is grounded in this. Through Christ, through Christ, he has become our father. He gave us his son. And he who did not spare his own son, how much more will he with him freely give us all things? <clears throat> and that frees us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and confidence that God will meet all our needs. There's no magic formula for prayer. And it's not simply a matter of uh, repeating correct words, saying our Father in heaven that uh, automatically wakes us up. It can assist us as we seek to be intentional, thoughtful, sincere, real in prayer. And remember that God is our Father and that he is in heaven. But we need his help even in prayer, don't we? In Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet deplores the spiritual condition of, of Israel. And in expressions of repentance and humility, he says, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And then he says this, it's like, the, and worst of all, there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But this very kind of honest and humble prayer is the kind of prayer that the Spirit inspires, the kind of prayer that God answers, expresses humility, and faith. It goes on to say, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter and all we are the work of your hands. You see what he's doing? He's pleading the revelation of God's grace. He is awake to the reality of his need and he is awake to the reality of God he calls upon him as father. You see, when, when we pray that way, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of grace and, and supplication. And the Bible commands us to pray in the spirit, realizing our need for the, the help of the spirit in our prayers and believing in God's promise to give us the Holy Spirit also. Let's pray fully awake to God. Amen.